How you guys doing this morning? Good. Well, as India said, my name is David Jacob, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, again, just want to take this opportunity to welcome anybody who's visiting with us for the first time or folks who haven't been here in a while. Welcome. Uh, we're so glad that you're here with us this morning, and we say it every week, uh, but we also just want to welcome everybody who's listening to us on our, our website, our podcast. Love it if you would join us here on Sunday morning. Um, I, uh, I want to be honest with you guys today. Uh, my heart is very heavy this morning, um, just as I continue to process the horrific and terrible tragedy that happened in New Zealand this week. If you paid attention to the news, um, there was a horrible massacre of 50 people gunned down at a mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand. And as I've just been processing this, I just felt like the Lord tell me to stand here before you all as a Christian pastor and just say that God hates murder. It doesn't matter who they are. They were worshiping in a mosque, and I suppose I can make some assumptions about where their heart is toward Jesus, but I don't know their stories. What I do know is that they were made in the image of God, and I feel like God hates murder. And so I stand here before you today just grieving that loss, and I, and I also recognize that that type of loss, that type of violence, that type of nonsense is all around us. What saddens me even more than just that particular story is that it is just another story. It is just another event of senseless violence, of brokenness, of, of horrific, horrific hatred that met a gun and 50 innocent lives. But I also stand here before you today because I have hope. We gather here today as believers in Jesus, along with millions and millions of other believers around the world, because we have hope. We believe that God is still up to something, even in the midst of this terrible darkness that is all around our world. We believe. We believe that there is hope. We believe And what the Bible tells us, that the reign and rule or the kingdom of God, as the Bible talks about it, is advancing into the dark places. And it's doing so forcefully. We believe, right? Otherwise, what are we doing here? I believe. I believe that God is up to something. Even in terrible times. And as I've just been reflecting on this tragedy and, and just sort of brought up another number of other tragedies, uh, the sobering thought came to mind that God is calling us into that. As God advances his kingdom, as he pushes back into the darkness, we are invited, maybe even commanded, to participate in the advancement of the kingdom of God. And I loved how Ramon talked about it last week. He gave a fan, uh, preached a fantastic sermon. If you weren't here last week, go listen to the podcast. And he just rem- reminded us, excuse me, how we all have a calling. We're not supposed to be idle observers. We're not supposed to be just sort of passive participants. But rather, God has chosen you and has chosen me to be active participants in the advancement of the kingdom of God. Now, I recognize, I recognize that some of us are called into the deepest, darkest places, but not all of us, right? We all have different callings. We all come from different places. We're all going different places according to God's plan for our life, God's calling for our life. But what is common among all of us is that God intends us to be agents of change. Wherever we are, We are meant to be agents of change. And Jesus over and over seems to give these directives, these commandments to his disciples to go out and do things. He says in the Great Commission, go out into all the world and and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? But we can kind of do that like covert op style, right? We We can... 
make disciples quietly. We can, we can do that almost passively. But then Jesus, in another teaching, uses these metaphors like being a light on a hill. We can't hide. We're supposed to be lights, beacons, shining out into the darkness around us. Right alongside that metaphor, he uses another metaphor about us being salt of the earth. This incredible mineral that, that, is, that just can't help itself but change the things around it. It's supposed to be salt of the earth. And what's, what's challenging to think about is that God, in, uh, Jesus in that same sort of teaching, describes that our effectiveness as agents of change is proportionate to our change, our personal change, our personal commitment to obedience. We are able to change on the outside most of the time what we have on the inside. Now, we understand that God uses the smallest, the simplest things in the world around us to to shame the wise, right, to to bring the high low, right? We realize that God is going to do whatever he wants, whether, you know, whether we like it or not, whether who's available or not, God is going to advance the kingdom of his kingdom into the darkness no matter what our level of participation is. But what we see over and over throughout Scripture is that not only are we supposed to be agents of change out there, we're supposed to be active participants, but we are supposed to be changing, right? There is a sense that we are supposed to be transformed, that we are supposed to be moving from where we were to where we should be. Why? Well, a number of reasons, but so that we can be as effective as we can be as possible as we go out and participate in this great mission of God. We're supposed to be agents of change who are changing. So I ask you this morning, what changes are you making so that you can be as effective as possible? What changes are we making so that we can participate in this incredible mission of God to change the world around us? And these are very hard questions to ask and answer ourselves, especially if if transformation, if if change is not a regular part of our lives, if it's not within the rhythm of our lives. But as we better understand Scripture, the Bible just seems to make clear that something has to change in the world around us, and in us. Now, I bet you have a pretty good idea how your spouse should change. I bet you have a pretty good idea how your boss should change. And, I, you know, I, I don't know about any of you in the room, but let me just say I have a few ideas about how some politicians should change, right? Seems like we have a pretty good idea of all the other people around us, how they should change and I just wonder how much energy, how much focus are you putting in to your change, your transformation, so that we can be used by the, by the God of heaven to change the world around us? These are hard questions. I was in a meeting earlier this year with some other vineyard pastors, and the leader of the meeting, just during our check-in time, uh, she asked, the simple question, what did transformation look like for you in 2018? And it was like, I don't know that anybody has ever asked me that particular question, that direct of a question. And this wasn't, you know, to put anybody in the hot seat or to grill anybody or to make sure, you know, you, you better be, you know. The, it wasn't anything like that. It was very pastoral, very loving. It was checking in to see how is God moving you from where you were to where you're supposed to be. And so that's the spirit of the, the question that I want to ask today. That's, that's, the, that's what I want to wrestle with today. How are we changing ourselves so that we can be agents of change in the world around us? And I'm so glad that we have the Bible. <laughs> I'm so glad that we don't have to sit in a room and try to figure this out on our own. I'm so glad that The Bible is full of passage after passage that helps us self-evaluate but also lead us 
toward the change that God expects uh, for our lives. And so this morning, I just want to pull out just one passage that I think is very helpful as we wrestle with this idea of what change might look like for our lives. Uh, I want to look at Romans chapter 8. I'd love it if you would join me there. We're going to read Romans 8. We're going to start reading in verse 1. Talking about change, talking about transforming to the person that God wants us to to be. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Let me, uh, let me pray and then I'll, uh, I'll read the passage. Holy Spirit, I just said, I ask that you would come. Come now, please. God, we just, we recognize that we need you. And we can fumble around this for a long, long time and never really understand what we're supposed to be doing. God, I ask that you would come now, that you would speak to each one of us. In the way that we need to be spoken to, in the way that we need to be challenged, in the way that we need to be comforted and encouraged, God, you know exactly what we need. So I said you would come. Come, Holy Spirit. Put power on this message. God, we just, we say, we recognize that you want us to be different. You want us to be whole. You want us to be doing incredible things for the kingdom of God, and we need you for that. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1. It says, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. Verse 5. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your minds leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It, it never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same spirit living within you. Verse 12, therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if if through the power of the spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. And so you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. And just to make sure that we don't fly off in the clouds... Paul brings us back to earth, and he says, but if we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. Beautiful passage, honest, 
deep, rich, a lot going on there. Um, actually, the, the, the entire book of Romans is just, it's just very thick. It's just very like dense with theological uh, wisdom and knowledge, and it really reveals quite a bit to us. And so we won't be able to unpack absolutely everything about this passage, but I love this passage. I love how it helps us better understand life with, the, life with God, life with the Spirit, and how we, what we can do to be transformed by God. And I really like how Paul begins this passage, um, uh, or, or the phrase that he uses in the beginning of the passage. He says in verse 1, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation with Jesus. I know that I'm saying this over and over, and I'm doing it on purpose, all right? There is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. I don't know what social circles you hang around or or how you communicate with your friends, but no one has ever said to me there is no condemnation for anything. It's It's a strange, it's an unusual phrase, but it means everything. It means so much as we talk about being transformed into the life and the person or people that God has called us to be. There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. What does this mean? What does this mean? What is Paul getting at here? Well, there's a lot wrapped up in this simple phrase, and I think Paul does just a really good job of explaining uh, kind of the, the, the basic elements of this in Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read a passage from Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. It says, uh, But now God has shown us a way to be made right with right." With him, without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty. He freed us from the condemnation. He freed us from the sentence, the judgment of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. What are we talking about here? talking about this idea that you and I deserve nothing when it comes to God. In fact, we deserve worse than that. According to what the Bible teaches us, because God is so holy, because he is so pure and righteous, any infraction separates us from God. And the penalty of our sin is death. The penalty is eternal separation from our Father in heaven. But God did something incredible. He enacted this plan that Jesus would take our penalty. That even though we messed up, we lived the broken life, we made all the mistakes, Jesus took our brokenness, he took our sin with him to the cross, and he set us free. We deserve to be condemned to die, but Jesus took on that condemnation. And because of that, because of what Jesus did, now we have, there, we have no fear of condemnation when it comes to God. And it almost sounds too, too good to be true. It almost sounds unfair, and it is. This is the glorious gift of God. This is the good news of God, right? And all we have to do is believe in Jesus and accept this free gift. Now, we, talk, we say that, and I, just, I even realize, okay, this, there's lots of this sort of like eternal cosmic language. Like, we're now connected to this eternal and glorious Father in heaven, right? That's, that's, that's important. We got to hold on to that. We got we to, like, hold on to that firmly. But I also be, 
believe that this idea that we, uh, we are free from this condemnation has like dated everyday like implications. It has everyday implications. And that is that because of the finality and because of the permanence of what Jesus did by accepting our punishment, we can now pursue the life with God with a sense of security. We don't have to walk around wondering if God is sort of has his boot hovering over us, just waiting to stomp us in, into the ground. We don't have to walk around wondering, is today going to be the day that God discards me? Is today going to be the day that I mess up so badly that suddenly I'm out? We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to carry the saddle of that, that religious just sort of devotion, just sort of, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do what I have to do and just hopefully, hopefully God won't destroy me. Right? But it's Instead, because there is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ, we can walk around with confidence. We can walk around knowing that God is never going to leave us or abandon us. We can walk around knowing that God is never going to destroy us at a whim. We're safe. And that should mean something on a day-to-day basis. It also means that we don't have to run from God. And we don't have to try to hide. We don't have to stay away from church because God might strike me down if I go to church. That sounds silly as I say it, but there are people who believe that. That if they engage in, the, in, in Christian community, if they sort of come close to something that is holy, they, they live with a fear that God is one breath away from smashing them. And it's a terrible, terrible existence to live with that sense of worry and anxiety. But we don't have to do that. We get to walk with security, confidence, knowing that God has claimed us. And in that same thought and in that same breath, Paul tells us that not only are we uh, secure in Christ, but we have been set free. We've been set free. This is what he says. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. He adds a little bit more uh, throughout the passage. And here in verse 12, he says, Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. So not only do we get to walk around just knowing, hey, God's got me. But he also has set me free from the things that has kept me stuck. Because of what Jesus did, we're free from fear. Because of what Jesus did, we are free from shame. Because of what he did, we're free from guilt. We can walk away out of the place of loneliness. We don't have to carry anxiety. We don't have to be saddled with comparison. We don't have to be uh, saddled with all these different religious ideals, this weight upon us, the things that keep us stuck. We're free from those things. We're free from those things. As I've just kind of been uh, preparing for this sermon, I've just been trusting that God is speaking and that he is uh, speaking to each one of us. And as I just sort of declare that God has set you free, I just trust that God is bringing to mind right now that place where you just think, you know what, I don't don't think God will ever set me free from that. That's always just going to be there. I'm going to stay stuck. It is what it is. I'll just write it out. I'll bite my lip. I'll just keep going. I love God. I I know he has a plan. But it is what it is. And I just, the word of the Lord for you today is, no, God has set you free. Through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, because he has claimed you, because we belong to him, you have been set free. This is essentially the good news of Jesus Christ, right? The basic idea of the good news of Jesus Christ is your life doesn't have to be the same. Whatever you're stuck in now, the dysfunctional cycles of relationships, of just the list can go on and on. It doesn't have to be that way. 
It's the good news of Jesus Christ. There's some other good news that almost doesn't sound like good news. I think it's good news. Not only are we free from all those things that would keep us oppressed and uh, under the weight of religion and fear, I feel like we also have a freedom to fail. We have a freedom to fail. And this is really interesting because, um, I, I mean, I just, I just feel like this is really important because this is where the idea of no condemnation comes in. We now can walk forward and press toward the things of God. We can try and we can fail and we can, we can do it with confidence that God is not going to discard us. That God's still going to love us. We have freedom to fail. The reason is we are, we are going to struggle. A basic truth of the Bible is that even though we have been set free, we are still going to struggle. This is what uh, Paul says in uh, verse 12. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. Paul is using some pretty strong language. He's talking in sort of uh, definitive language. Uh, but in there, we, we can get the idea that we still have a choice. That the Holy Spirit is doing something, that God is transforming us, that, that we, are no, we have been set free, but we still have a choice. We still have a choice. And I actually want to, uh, I want to read Romans chapter 7 uh, because if you read Romans chapter 8 and you read all these lines that Paul is talking about, like if you, if you uh, obey your sinful nature, you're actually not at all like uh, uh, connected to God. It just feels very binary. It feels like you know, you're either doing everything right and you're with the Spirit of God or you're doing something wrong and you're just totally separated from God. But there's a tension. There's a tension that we live in that we are both free and we will struggle. And this is the Apostle Paul writing in chapter 7, uh, starting in verse 14. I'm going to read it. And this is, this is his struggle. He says, So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know what what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I want to do what is, uh, I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle in life. That when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death. Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because my mind, because my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. I want to one day. I'm going to preach a, a preach a sermon just on that passage, and we just can see how it goes. That's really hard to swallow. This is like this amazing, like church planting, maybe the most influential Christian to have ever lived going on and on and on about talking about how like he's trying to do what's right but he can't he's trying to obey God's laws but he doesn't do it he, he, he's tried to avoid sin but he, he keeps step, stepping in it he keeps messing up 
And then you read chapter 8 and say, okay, what, Paul, what is it? Are, are, we, are we struggling with sin or has Jesus set us free? Which is it? Which is it? You know, I know some might argue that Paul might be writing in a sense of hyperbole, that, is, that he is, you know, using exaggerative language to talk about maybe life without the Spirit, but it, that's, not, that's not what I read. I read him talking in the present tense. He is both saved by God and he struggles with sin. And this is, this is really important as we, just, as we try to be, you know, try to engage in this life with God, as we try to walk out this transformation that God has for us. There is a tension at work here. There's a tension that we have to live in that God has both set us free and he is setting us free. That there is a sense of now that God has broken in and broken the power of sin and that he is also transforming us, moving us toward a whole and healthy life in the, lo- in the long run. If you read chapter A, you just think like, man, I, I should be perfect. I have the Spirit of God in me. I, why am I struggling with sin? It's because there is this tension. There is this tension that we struggle. And I'm going to say this carefully, and I hope you understand what I'm saying. It's okay to struggle. Okay? It's okay to struggle. It's okay to fail. It's just God doesn't want you to be a failure. You get what I mean by that? It's okay to mess up because we're not perfect. And God knows we're not perfect. And guess what? He loves you anyway. There's a tension that we live in. So what does this mean for us on a day-to-day basis? It means that this journey of being transformed is like a lifelong thing. We can't ever consider ourselves as like arrived. I have been transformed like... In the past, I made a transition, and now I am altogether something. In a sense, yes, but we are also being transformed. God is at work in our lives every day. What that means is that we have to continue to say yes again and again and again. We have to continue to respond to the Holy Spirit again and again and again. We have to stay close to the Spirit. We have to, we have to walk with the Spirit. We have to be guided by the Spirit every day. Every day. Because there's still sin in us. I think it also means that we need to stay on guard. There are still places where we can fall. There are still places that we can struggle and that can totally take us out of the game. There are places that had once had a grip on our lives that we have moved past but can easily pull us back into. Uh, I listen to music um, like all day at work. It's just I can't concentrate. Literally, I can't concentrate unless I have like loud music in my ears um, I'm like at work, I'm like, I'm that guy. Like people try to talk to me and I, I you know, I'm just totally clueless to the people around me. Um, uh, and so, you know, you can only listen to the same like stations so many times, right? I mean, just add up the hours and listen to the same song like hundreds of times, right? And so not too long ago, I thought, you know what? Let me turn on like 90s hip hop. I grew up on 90s hip hop, like, you know, I sort of forgot what it was like. Haven't listened to it in a while. And I, I'll tell you what, it wasn't but a couple songs in where I'm thinking like, no, I don't, I don't think I should be listening to this. <laughs> I mean, not only, so here's the thing, not only were the lyrics um, not censored at all, they, this was not the uh, clean radio version, but what I, what I began to realize as I was listening to it was like my emotions, my mind was being taken back to a time when I was not following Jesus. And suddenly I was like feeling like this, this pull back into a place where I should not go. And so we, 
that's my trigger, and my goodness, I got plenty of other triggers. But I wonder what's your trigger? What's that thing that you need to stay on guard about? And this is, this is part of like, like walking out this, like, this, this, this transformation. It's not just sort of pursuing the only, you know, pursuing the noble things of Christ. It's being on guard to not step into the things that would keep us stuck. Not, step, you know, not get pulled back by our sinful nature. Not allow the, our sinfulness to pull us back and control our mind, control our lives, take a hold of things that it should not take a hold of. For you, maybe it's a relationship. That every time you meet that person, it just takes you back to a place where you should not go. Maybe it's a certain kind of media or a hangout spot or a type of food. That sort of triggers some like endorphins or some sort of neurological pathways, which is real, okay? Our, our brains are wired. They remember things. They, they recall sort of uh, events and emotions based on like sensory input. And so smells of things and, and f- flavors of things. I mean, it, it sounds strange if you don't, uh, if you're not interested in science, but it's real, right? I mean, that, but that, that pulls us back. It has a potential to pull us back into a place where we should not go. So that I just feel like this is what Paul is urging us as he talks about his struggles. He's urging us to stay connected to the Spirit. You can't afford to dip your toe back into those places. You can't do it. If we don't hold up tight to the Spirit, we quickly get pulled back. You know, some of you have totally bought into your security with Christ. You're able to stay connected with the Spirit, maybe even mess up, but you're able to get right back on track. You're able to, to live this out, and you just, you know, you got rhythms. You, you, can, you can re-engage with the Spirit of God quickly. But for all the rest of us, you know, we hear this, this great news that Jesus has set us free. We don't have to live with a sense of condemnation. And it almost just sounds like this foreign thing. Because every day we seem to struggle with the same things. It's just over and over we find ourselves in the same cycles of dysfunction. And maybe lately you've been giving in more and more. And little by little you've just sort of been letting go of that determination to be transformed, letting go of that determination to stay righteous, and little by little, you're moving backwards. I just feel like I have, I just want to remind you, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't have to think about that and feel shame. You don't have to think about that and feel guilt and regret that is going to sideline you. Instead, what is Paul telling us here is that when we encounter those situations, we have hope because we now have the Holy Spirit within us. There is an answer to that. Yes, we struggle. It's a part of our existence. But guess what? We have the Holy Spirit This is something that the world does not have. It cannot claim. We have the Spirit of God in us, next to us, around us, guiding us, teaching us. We have the Holy Spirit. And I love how Paul talks about this, starting in verse 9. He says, but I'm going to, he says, but you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit living in you. I want you to just sort of take notice of all the times where Paul is reminding us over and over that the Spirit is in us. He is with us. He says, the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. Over and over and over, just these few short verses, Paul is reminding us over and over again 
that the Spirit is with us. He is with us. And I just want to consider this for a moment. The God who made the heavens and the earth, who has every right to be separated from creation because creation has fallen, because creation is broken, who has every right to keep his distance, God who created the heavens and the earth, he knows you. He knows your past. He knows what you've done. He knows that you're not perfect and that you're a mess and that you, I'm talking to me, that I mess up over and over and over again. He knows my struggles. He knows all of that. But he doesn't hover over me with a stick waiting to mess me up, to pound me. He doesn't leave me with, with this complex and oftentimes overwhelming book called the Bible. Just, just, just says, hey, here. Figure it out on your own. What he does is that he invests himself in us so that we can become the people that he wants us to be. The God of the universe. My goodness. The God of the universe is so invested in you becoming you or the you that you should be that he gives you his spirit. I kind of want to let that sink in for a little bit. Listen, how many, how many people, just, let's just say people, invest in you? That truly give their time, resources, maybe a few if you're lucky. Many people don't have anybody. But the God of heaven gives you the best of himself to help you transform into who he has called you to be. That's incredible. It's incredible. God is with you and he is for you. He is for you. He is your champion. He is your encourager. He is your comforter. He connects with you to see you transform. This is powerful. This is very, very powerful. And as we engage with the Spirit of God, we see things changing in our lives, right? And Paul talks about a few of the things here, just sort of alludes to a few of them. The first thing that, that we can see is that as we engage in life with God, the Holy Spirit changes our minds. The Holy Spirit changes our minds. Paul sort of breezes past this. But I think it's a really critical aspect of our personal and sort of spiritual transformation. And that is the most significant change that we can make in our lives is actually in our minds. It's not necessarily our pocketbook. It's not necessarily where we live, what job we have. The most significant way that God can transform you into the person that you are supposed to be is in your mind. In verse 5 he says, Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Paul speaks more directly to this a couple chapters down in Romans 12.2 where he says, Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person. How? By changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Why does this matter that the Holy Spirit is invested in changing the way that we think? It's because how we perceive the world becomes our reality. How we sort of uh, take in the information around us becomes our reality, no matter what reality actually is. You know, there's a sort of adage, perception is reality, right? But it's largely accurate. So we have to consider what is defining our reality? What is defining our truth? Is it the words that were spoken over you as a kid? Is it the slanted reporting of that news organization? Is it the the image you see in the mirror? Is it the opinions of the people around you? 
the people you grew up with? Is it the latest hashtags or viral videos or social media buzz? Is it the trauma that you experienced that shaped your life? Is it your selfish preferences? What about the lies that are whispered into our ears by our spiritual enemy, Satan? Is that what you accept as truth? And this is so important because what we accept, what we put into our minds, shapes how we think about ourselves. It defines who we think we're supposed to be. It shapes what we think about God. It shapes just everything. And the charge is to let the Spirit of God determine what is true. Jesus talks about this as he is sort of preparing his disciples um, before he goes up to heaven in John chapter 14, um, I'm sorry, before he is crucified. Um, He's sort of preparing his disciples for sort of life after him leaving. In John chapter 14, he says, If you love me, obey my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him, but you will know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. This is so important to let the Holy Spirit define what truth is. Um, A personal story, um, when I was about... I don't know, 21. Um, uh, I went out for an, an evening with the God's, my, my, my God sister, um, and uh, we're just, just sort of hanging out. I mean, there was, wasn't much to it. But she had an incredibly abusive boyfriend. And when we were coming back, and I was dropping her off, uh, or actually, we were, we were both going to her, her house, so I just kind of rejoin her family. Her boyfriend was there, and he was armed, and he confronted us in the car. And in that moment, I was more afraid than I think I have ever been. And it's shameful for me to talk about it now, but I just, I didn't know what to do. And the only logic that I could come up with is perhaps he might be able to get talked down if you go talk to him. And so I asked my God sister to go and engage in this abusive, armed, and very disturbed individual. And as she was attempting to do that, he grabbed her, and and in that that altercation, it didn't really amount to anything, but uh, uh, her chain... Was, was ripped off her neck. She wasn't hurt at all, but her chain ripped off her neck and it fell kind of in between us. And I didn't know what to do. I just, you know, not much is going on in my mind at that point. And I, I grabbed the chain and I put it in my pocket. And uh, after we went into the house, we called the police. There was, they were looking for him. It's, it's a whole long story, but uh, she was okay that night. Um, and I just, I was saddled with that shame for a long, long time. And I had this necklace that I didn't know what to do with because it was a symbol of that horrible, shameful moment. And so I don't know why, but I started wearing it. And I carried that thing around my neck as a reminder of that shame, of that moment. And I did it for years, and I don't know why. And when I was dating my wife, Jenny, uh, I told her that story, and um, she bought me a new chain. And I wear it every day, and it's a reminder that I'm not the punk that I thought that I was. And I don't have to feel the shame that I did. And that the Holy Spirit has set me free from that. And I wear it, 
and I know the events of, the, of that situation. I know what happened. I know the decisions that I made. But instead of letting that moment define who I was, I made a choice to let the Holy Spirit determine who I was. So I, I had to go through that. And it's, it's time of healing, but, but this is what the Holy Spirit does. He takes our corrupted sense of reality. It is often broken. It is often shaped by so many things that are trying to keep us stuck. And he reminds us of who we are, who we're supposed to be. He redefines our reality to what the truth of God is. So I don't know how we can be transformed into into the people that we are called to be unless we let the Holy Spirit determine what truth is. And so for you, I don't know what situations you've encountered, what things, what lies, what, what input is shaping your life, shaping your reality, but the charge today is where does the Holy Spirit stand when it comes to truth? Is he the source of truth? Is he changing your mind? And if he is, we see something interesting happen. The Holy Spirit changes our lives. Paul says in verse uh, 6, he says, So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. I'll expand that list even further as Paul talks about the fruit of the, of the Spirit. This is the, this is the uh, in, in, in a different book, in a different place, this is what the Holy Spirit adds to our life as we let him call the shots, as we let him define truth, as we allow, uh, follow him and his leading. Our lives are changed in the direction of love, in the direction of joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. This is the fruit that, that, that is within, you know, that, that sort of falls off the tree of our lives, that is indicative of our lives when we let the Holy Spirit call the shots. This is what we get when we follow the Spirit. Romans 12, 2, let me read that again. He says, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect when we let the Holy Spirit control our minds, when we let him define truth. Suddenly our life begins to make sense. We can see with a sense of clarity of what we should be doing in our lives. When the other things just sort of cloud our perception and, 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 and try to distract us from the things of God, the Holy Spirit brings clarity and a sense of like clear trajectory of where we should go. Our relationships begin to change, right, as we let the Holy Spirit lead us. If you have kids, your parenting will change as you let the Holy Spirit lead you. Your habits will begin to change. And I'm going to go on a limb here, but I would say as, if, as you let the Holy Spirit guide you, your politics will likely change. Your life pursuits will change as you let the Holy Spirit guide you, renew your mind, define what truth is. Our lives change. Our lives change as we are being transformed by God. And finally, and I'll end with this, as we let the Holy Spirit kind of call the shots and define, uh, define truth in our lives, the Holy Spirit changes our identity. It changes who we are. Now, for me, in that moment, my identity was shaped by that particular incident and trauma, and I accepted that I was a coward and a punk. Think about all the different things that were spoken over me as a kid. It's called a liar and a cheat. And I accepted that as who I was. In so many different ways, the enemy and just so many different things that would lie to us, our sinful nature, our corrupted nature would lie to us and tell us that we are something that God had never intended us to be. But the Holy Spirit changes that. And he calls us into a new identity. I just want to read this. 
He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received the spirit that makes you fearful slaves. We're talking about identity. You are not a slave. You're a child of God. In, instead, you receive God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. Again and again, we're told that we are his children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. We are God's children. We're God's children. We get We get to call him Abba, Father. We get to call him Daddy. We get to sit on his lap. We get to hugs and kisses from God in a spiritual sense. He comforts us when we've scraped our knee, right? He guides us the way a father, a good father would. He he wraps us in his arms. Not only that, but he gives us the best of who he is. We are his heirs. We get the best. We don't get the scraps the way a slave might. We don't get punished. We don't get set aside. We get to sit on his lap. We get to be called children of God. It's because we're precious to him. Did you know that you are precious to God? You're precious. You're precious to him. He loves you so much. He loves you so much that he was willing to send Jesus to this earth, sacrifice his son so that you would be able to sit on his lap forever, that you would be able to enjoy the daughter-father, the son-father relationship that he had always wanted with you. God loves you. God loves you so much. And it's because of all that. Worship team, you can come up. It's because it's, it's, it's through those lenses. It's, it's, it's using that framework that we transform our lives to the lives that God has called us to. Right? Anything apart from being connected with the Spirit of God to being joined with His Spirit, it's just going to lead us to a place that we should not be. The change that we're supposed to be making in the world around us is going to be so much more difficult if we are not in step with and aligned with and joined with the Spirit of God. We are transformed. We become agents of change. We are renewed. We are game changers, change makers, Men and women of peace, people who God will send out to change the world around us. And the only real and effective way to do that is to be aligned with the Spirit of God. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for all that you give to us. We don't deserve anything, we don't deserve anything, but you give us the best. We deserve destruction. We deserve death. But you have claimed us. You have set us apart. You call us children, daughters, and sons. God, I thank you for that generosity. I just, I can't, I can't understand why. I thank you that you see me for who I am, for what I've done. And you love me. I thank you that you know my habits and my hang-ups, the places that I get stuck again and again, and you still have a plan for me. I thank you that you are a loving and merciful and generous and kind and amazing God. Thank you. So I ask, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Change our minds right now. In the places where we've been stuck, the lies that we've accepted, the the, the hang-ups where we just can't seem to break free from, come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, break that right now, in Jesus' name. 
Come, Holy Spirit. Do what only you can do. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.